Hey, pull up a chair. Tax on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Mike Murphy, how are you, brother? I am good. I'm, I'm coming to you here from South Carolina. I'm already ahead of the curve. <laughs> uh, <Good for laughs> jumping you. ahead. And I can good. tell you, I feel it. I, I feel the... the uh, the mo- momentum here for uh, for Joe Biden it's unstoppable. I've Joe been wrong momentum, all huh? these months. We're going. To, <laughs> well, we let's not, not jump quite. ahead in the story here, but that is ground zero uh, in the near term for this Democratic yeah. race. This is where that's where a lot of things are going to get uh, sorted out. So, what got sorted out last night? One of them is that uh, there there is it was no momentum rather than Joe momentum for Biden. You're shorting of Biden. Uh, turns out to be a pretty good bet. Well, the minute I heard he wouldn't do the Axe Files, I knew. I knew <laughs> it was just a matter of time, like a Jenga tower, it would all come crashing down. Yeah, I, I felt a little uh, bad for him. Will they ever this... learn these lessons? I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> yes. Young campaign managers, take note. Write it down. Let me tell you, uh, I was up in New Hampshire this weekend, mm-hmm. and I uh, you could just sense what was going on up there, which is the virtue of being on the ground. But I was on the line uh for a Amy Klobuchar rally, and I was talking to people on the line, and there was a, a group, and I said, are you shopping or are you for Klobuchar? We're still shopping. Who you, who's in your shopping cart? Well, uh, Amy and Pete Buttigieg. I said, well, what about, what about Joe Biden? What about the vice president? Uh, and uh, one guy said, well, actually, I had a fundraiser for him earlier in the campaign. He mm. said, but but uh, he said, I just don't think Joe has it anymore, and uh, so I'm not choosing him. Yeah, that's that's rough, but, you know, like we've been saying, when you're running on winability and you're going to be so competitive, if you don't win, you're Superman who can't fly, and that's exactly where he is. And for all his hope that he'll have the last stand in South Carolina, that is a long way away. He's got Nevada first, which will be grim. I'm sure the money will become very bad. It's probably been bad for a while. So yeah, I think uh, I think Joe momentum is over, and now now the press will be in vulture mode on him and his campaign. And we're no, I think, from what we've both noticed in the past on that campaign, they're very quick to have staff leaks about it. They'd only listen to me. Yeah, you know, if we'd only had the glow in the dark yo-yos, it would have all been different. And so we're going to start seeing that. Let me say something about Biden, uh, and then let's get to the core of the race. Um, and I don't want to. I don't want to be premature in, in, in post-mortems here, but um, he had his best moment, in my, my view, last week, the 15 minutes during a CNN town hall where he was asked about his stuttering yeah. and what advice he had for people who, were, are, who, who are dealing with stuttering. And he gave the most magnificent and powerful and connecting answer, and it reminded me of what Joe Biden's true comparative advantage is, which is decency, empathy, humanity. And why they didn't build their campaign around that is such a a, a puzzle to me because those are qualities that the president of the United States lacks. And I think those are the qualities that really bother people. The, the, lacking, the lack of those qualities really bothers people. Why not Build your campaign around the things that everybody knows is the essence of Joe Biden. I, I just, I don't get it. 
We both know from long and occasionally painful experience that the best campaigns find something true and relevant about the candidate and unique to them and amplify the hell out of it. And, you know, I, I saw that, too, and I was moved by it. Uh, one of my best friends growing up had a, had a very bad stutter. He went on to become a litigator on a very successful one. And I, I watched that, and I had the same reaction. I thought, man, that, that it should have been this stuff from day one. But we both know there's also this thing when the candidate knows it's bad and getting worse, there's a certain freedom that comes over them. And often they start doing the best moments and performances of the entire campaign. And you wish if you'd only seen more of it early. Yeah, well, what it reminded me of, and I, I, I caught Biden up in New Hampshire, and I was reminded again um, of that, that uh, he is, a, he is a, a very, very good and decent man. And, uh, and that, that matters, you know, wherever you finish. But it was brutal yesterday for him, single digits, no delegates, single digits uh, for Elizabeth Warren, no delegates. Um, their campaigns are in deep trouble. We'll get back to that. We should talk about the the winner and really the winners. Yeah. Uh, Bernie Sanders eked out a win in Iowa. It was a closer win than I thought it would be, and and that the polls suggested uh, it would be. Uh, and it came. I, I last night I was uh, I was uh, pontificating and bloviating about a poor turnout in New Hampshire. It turned out that it wasn't it wasn't a poor turnout. It was 17%. Yeah, it was it was good. Higher than 2016 and uh glad they weren't videotaping that. And, and <laughs> Oh, uh, I have it all. I have it all right with my Republican <laughs> predictions of the rebellion in the Senate. They're they're all going in the vault. All right, man. We're even now. Yeah, but, yeah exactly. Uh, we got something on each other. No, nah, but I was working I was working off of earlier information, but the point is you would have said uh, Bernie Sanders in a state he had won with 60% of the vote uh, and uh, with a turnout that was 17%, I mean in 2016, with a turnout 17% higher, was in good shape with a, with uh, with the moderates splitting so much of the vote. Klobuchar, an unexpected 20%. Buttigieg, you know, tw- uh, 24 and change. You would think Bernie Sanders would have won this by 8, 10 points and he won it by less than a point and a half uh this is twice now that he has been able to claim a victory he had a, a you know he had a popular vote victory in Iowa which really doesn't mean uh much but he's actually behind Buttigieg and delegates they tied on delegates yesterday so uh you know three quarters of the people who voted yesterday voted against Sanders and I know that uh, there's a panic among some quarters of the Democratic Party about Bernie Sanders because he has a base and he has the resources to go on. But I'd also be concerned if I were Sanders that I haven't been able to expand that base. It's hard to 25 percent your way yep. to the nomination in the Democratic Party because, as you point out, often we're, we, we give out participation ribbons. Everybody gets a prize if you get 15 percent or more. Hard, hard to get to uh, the delegate number you need her even close that way. So am I wrong about this? Am uh, I no, being unfair I, I, to Bernie? I, we've always talked about the Bernie ceiling, and he's profited from Elizabeth Warren's collapse, but not enough. I mean, he, in raw votes last night, he got less than half of what he did when he when he swept the primary. So, you know, only, only half of his ticket buyers came back to see the sequel, which is a, a troubling thing. 
And, and I agree. He, he's got the money and the, the big knot of voters, kind of the plurality to keep going. And maybe the, the rest of the field is so scattered that he can extend that all the way. But my guess is order will come to it. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I think you, you got to give them the win. The win is the win. But if you look from zero, you know, from a year ago, who's come the farthest? There's no doubt to me it's Mayor Pete. I mean, Biden was the front runner. Bernie was the base guy with money doing a repeat. And Elizabeth Warren, at least last summer, we were, we were both saying it, more stuff to go into the vault, that she really had it organized, had a strong message in the primary. Yep. And so the thing has been totally turned over. And the person who came from why are you running zero to really uh, a narrow win and a narrow second out of nowhere is Pete Buttigieg. You've got to kind of give him the traditional performance trophy so far. Yeah, you know, uh, just looking uh, on this turnout issue, just looking at uh, yesterday's electorate in the exit poll, first-time voters, uh, 14% were first-time voters. Not a huge number, but uh, but in, in any case, Pete Buttigieg got 27% of those first-time voters, Sanders 24 Now, you would think the first-time voters would be in Sanders' favor. Right. Uh, and so that speaks to the level of organization that Buttigieg had uh, in that state. Amy Klobuchar also did relatively well, 17% of the first-time voters. And she she closed really well after that very good debate performance uh, on Friday. The real question for these guys, Mike, is where do they go? I mean, if you're sitting there, let's put ourselves in our strategist role. Uh, you're Buttigieg, you're Klobuchar. Uh, Buttigieg is more, a little more advanced organizationally than Klobuchar. She's new you know, into the top tier. What are you, how are you gaming out the next few weeks? Well, I, I, I'm dying to talk about that, but one quick mini question for you on the way to it as we kind of wrap up, uh, New Hampshire. Yeah. If, Amy had not had that strong debate, and Pete had not had that so-so debate. Do you think he would have continued his trajectory and won the New Hampshire primary? My feeling is he would have. W- without question. Without yeah. question. There's no question. Now, I will say he got the the lion's share. I think he got 31% of the vote. A lot of voters decided, or maybe it was 31% of the voters decided on the last day. It was, it was a huge number. Uh, and he did uh, very well with those voters, but she did very well in the in the in the days before, which was a reaction to the debate. There's no doubt in my mind that uh, that Buttigieg would have beaten Sanders if not for the Klobuchar rise, which raises a question moving forward uh, about whether uh, the two of them being in there dilutes them both mm-hmm. uh, and makes it harder for either of them to get to where they need. Uh, to go. Um, you know, you look across the, the, the thing that was impressive about Buttigieg's performance, as was the case in Iowa, was he really doesn't have, you know, uh, weaknesses across the demographic uh, or geographical divides here in this polling. You know, he tends to do well uh, in, uh, in most categories. He's pretty good across age groups, you know, he does a little bit better with uh, middle-aged and older voters, but he did fine with younger voters. He's, you know, he's, he did uh, just about as well with uh, uh, men and women. Uh, I mean, and that is uh, no other candidate has as uniform a kind of appeal as he does. But uh, again, he, he doesn't necessarily dominate any of those categories, and it's going to be harder to consolidate things 
the longer that Klobuchar, if she stays in that top tier as a result of this, uh, is there. So let's let's move ahead. The Nevada, South yeah. Carolina, we're talking about states that are diverse. And the, the question about Buttigieg has always been, like Bernie's built to last. He's going to be there till the end. And the question is who coalesces uh, the center left and becomes the alternative. Yeah, yeah. Who, who becomes the not Bernie, which is probably the majority of the leading denomination. It's kind of like the old Republican model in the old Pat Robertson, Pat Buchanan days, where they'd start strong and then the plurality of non-movement conservatives, regular conservatives would overcome them. Well, what I would be thinking about if I'm the... That theory was the same theory that was, that was applied to Trump. Uh, but again, you got you had winner take all primaries over right. there, which helped him a lot. He could limp along at thirty thirty five percent and right. st- and still walk away with the cheese, you know. Yeah, if you guys had winner take all, old, old Bernie might uh, might be able to do it. So um, it's nutrition races, you know better than anybody on that side. I would say if I'm if I first of all putting Bernie aside, um, if I'm Pete and. Uh, Klobuchar. I'm eyeing each other. Pete has more resources, but Amy's got a certain spark. The media loves to run with her. I mean, she's done an amazing job of taking being wiped out in Iowa and a, a third place, not over, not tight third, decent third in New Hampshire, and turning that into into press rocket fuel. She's got all the scaling problems when you didn't have any money until a week ago. But I, if I were her and Pete, I'd, I'd both be talking to the same people today, and I'd pretty much be offering my uh, soul politically on a silver platter, I'd be at that culinary union in Nevada, uh, which is a part of Unite. It's extremely powerful, represents bartenders in Las Vegas and other hotel workers, about 60,000 of them, well-organized, and they don't like Bernie's health care plan. And they have been neutral so far. I think there's been some behind-the-scenes talking. And I would I would try to get that and because I want to win yeah. or at least be top two in me and Bernie in Nevada. And caucuses are tricky to organize. If you're Pete, you also want to show you can do okay in a diverse place because you want to build up a little fuel into South Carolina. This is a big issue, isn't it? The big question has been, Pete Buttigieg, uh, there have been these questions about whether he can appeal to minority voters, whether he can appeal to African Americans, whether he can appeal to Latino voters. Now, now he has vaulted into contention here, and now comes the testing, the proving ground. Either he can or he can't. Um, I think he has to do well again in Nevada. I don't think he can just skip Nevada and go on to South Carolina because his thing relies on keep. He has to do the same trick over and over yep. again, which is to prove that he's viable. Uh, and so uh, the first test is Nevada and. and uh, where you know you have a large numbers of minority voters, a large number of Hispanic voters, uh, and then on to South Carolina. Klobuchar has some of the same problems that Pete does. There are questions about his, her prosecutorial record. She's been criticized, um, you know, by Black Lives Matter and others uh, uh, on that record. She's going to have to defend that. We've talked about this before. The headiest time in campaigns is that when you're on your way up and, you you know, you get a free shot because nobody thinks you're important enough to attack. Right. And then then it starts. Well, those days are over for Amy Klobuchar. You know, she's she's like uh, uh, she's going to she's going to now reap the benefits and also the liabilities of being in that top tier. And she's going to join Mayor Pete in having to answer uh some of these uh, uncomfortable questions and we'll see yeah. how she handles that. So this is a big test 
for both of them. Well, you know, and this is what the system's good at. They're, they're both in the pressure cooker now. Pete is in a strong position, but he, he's got to take it another step. I think he's got to up his performance. I think he has to show a little more strength. And as you say, Nevada is the perfect opportunity. It's a high-risk thing. But if he can do well there, that'll change the narrative of minority voters. And then he can go rolling into South Carolina, where he's going to do fine um, with the kind of independence, uh, kind of the east side of the state. The question is, can he be competitive? doesn't have to win, but can he get into African-American voters? I mean, I have to admit, I've been my Republican uh, heart has been chuckling a little. It's the tribal instinct thinking about the brawling contest between Bernie Sanders, Amy Klobuchar, and Pete Buttigieg uh, down here because it is literally, you know, the, it's going to be the whitest fight since <laughs> a riot broke out at an Osmonds concert. I mean, it's hilarious. <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're the whitest people in the Democratic Party stumbling down to a place where the African-American vote is incredibly important. So, you know, and Joe's going to try to stay and have his last stand with a chunk of it here is spending money. Yeah. Well, and, and don't forget Tom Steyer, who has done nothing so far, but he's spending a boatload of money. He did spend a boatload of money in New Hampshire and got three and a half percent for it. But in South Carolina, he's making big inroads and those inroads are coming largely with African-Americans. Whether he can hang on to that vote, I don't know. But he's going to be a factor down there. I don't think there's any question about same in in nevada so it's crowded a lot of competition for that vote and we'll see you know how skillful these candidates are at making those inroads you know if i were a Buttigieg, i'd be loading up a bus of people uh, you know he does have endorsements yeah, from, from south black bend. leaders in in, yeah. in south bend they should be headed down to south carolina and barnstorm uh that state he's got you know a, a, some congressional endorsements that he that and those folks should be down there. He needs to really blitz that state uh, and uh, you know get his share, and that's all he can hope for is his share. One last note on those guys, uh, and because there's a there's a there's a very wealthy dude about to enter the play here who we we got to talk about. But uh, I last night um, I thought Amy Klobuchar, and she did the week before, made the most of her time on the stage. I thought her uh, her speech last night was uh, a uh, it w- it was very very good. It was uh, it was it was emotional. Talked about her family and her family's working class history. Her grandfather, the miner. Her father's alcoholism and struggles with that. Uh, and she related it to other people's problems and concerns. Uh, and it was very accessible and very I thought moving. Uh, Buttigieg's. Uh, speech which was was wedged between hers and sanders i thought was was not not as good it was long it was uh very rhetorical it didn't have as much humanity in fact there were no people around him both uh, sanders and uh and uh klobuchar had people around them and there was uh, a sense of movement uh whereas you know i think they wanted to invest uh they wanted to invest Pete with a sort of presidential stature, and so they had flags behind him instead of people. He needs to, uh, he, they need to sort of do a humanity check, and he needs to loosen up. I saw him at a town hall up there, and he was really, really good, but he wasn't working off a text. Yeah. He was looser. He actually belched, by the way, during, I saw one, during the his viral talk. 
clip yeah, of he, that. He, yeah. it, was, it was pretty good. He belched and, uh, and, uh, and he was, it was during an answer on education at this town hall. And he said, well, I guess I would have gotten detention for that, <laughs> uh, which was a pretty good, pretty good cover. But, right. you know, most candidates just say, my God, the candidate belched with, with him. You know he's he's so uh, buttoned down and everything. You say, "Hey, belch more often, will you? This is good for you." Yeah, no, he needs an evolution now. I think he needs to show some strength. I, I thought his speech was okay, but I take your point of you kind of want the 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 stage exploding with excited people. Hell, if McCain we were waving laser swords around in two thousand <laughs> when we won the primary, you know, to go take on the empire, you want that sense of drama. I do think. If I were the Pete people, I would try to nationalize the campaign and I would go give a big generational change speech somewhere uh, to try to have a big defining moment. And most of all, I would be ready, and the Amy people have to both grab and be worried about this, for the next debate in one week. Because Amy is now the queen of debate, so she'll her expectations will be very high and people will be ready for her. Her, her MO is... Uh, uh, predictable because we've seen it before. It's been effective for her, and I think Pete and uh, and Bernie, as as you said, you know, the price of success is you uh, you get a painful massage. So <laughs> this debate in a week, Amy could take if she has another great performance, she could really have something going that's message driven, not organizational, or one of the others could break through. It's going to be a real Pete versus Amy slugfest debate with one other factor. Let's go to that. Right, exactly, exactly. We're, this is going to be the debut, the the coming out of uh, Michael Bloomberg. You've seen him on TV. He, now he's coming to a debate stage near you. And uh, this is going to be a big test for him. You know, with Biden's collapse, a lot of the party establishment, uh, particularly in places like uh, New York, are uh, gravitating to Bloomberg. And they're doing it because... Uh, you know, obviously he's a formidable guy, but it's also, you know, they think he has the resources and the uh, and, and the uh, gravitas to uh, to take on Trump. Uh, and he's moved a lot of numbers. He's moving into he's moved into the mid teens and some national polls. Uh, you know, bad side. Uh, one of the bad signs for Biden is that his support among African Americans has collapsed, and uh, some of it has gravitated to Bloomberg. I mean, there are a lot of positive signs. Uh, for Bloomberg, but he really hasn't been in this yet. Yeah, no, and now exactly. he has to perform. Yeah, and uh, it is there is a Wizard of Oz possibility here where they pull the curtain back and people say, "Wait, this little dude is that's him? That's the guy we've been watching on TV." And he's going to have to do. He's not a great debater historically. He's not a charismatic guy. He's a you know brilliant guy, brilliant manager, you know great philanthropist. He's got a lot of assets, but. Uh, performance is not one of them. Yeah, I, I tell you, you're, you're onto something here. And disclosure, I like him. I think he'd be a great president. I've worked for him in the past. Uh, but you're right. They, they they put the big spend and they bought a bunch of March polling data. But, you know, I, I've been joking. The problem is it's hard to win the Oscar when you're not in the movie, and the movie is February. So <laughs> this is the first time he's dipping his toe into the, the big movie. And we're going to see something other than a highly produced ad and he can't be kind of a grumpy, older kind of candidate. So, you know, Bloomberg is one of these things on paper. He turned 78 this weekend, I think. Yeah, no, exactly. And that tape, I mean, he, and that was a timely oppo dump, I thought, to put him back into the uh, stop and frisk uh, uh, jungle right, right when the frisk, media all yeah. wanted to talk about him. It was a adroit job, I think, of, of putting a little bit of uh, motor oil into the milk. But the, my point about Bloomberg is, 
he has this perfect storm plan. Have enough money to, you know, buy name ID and get ready if Biden collapses. Don't have to worry about not having donors react to bad polling and driving him out because he doesn't have donors. And to his credit, it's all coming together. Now he's got the shot. The question is, okay, he, you know, he bought the Yankees outfit and, and he, he waited for the, the one, the one player to like quit the team. So now he's, now he's in the show. And he's going to have to perform in a debate, and he's still got the problem. Do Democratic primary voters want an older billionaire, even one with a pretty impressive record? So I'm fascinated about this debate next week because I think Bloomberg may do well because I think there's a hunger in the party to beat Trump. And any time any of these other candidates has looked like a loser, Elizabeth Warren with her health care plan at the end of the last year, oh, and then then you melt away. Some doubts about Pete, I think, are holding him back a little bit. Bernie, we know uh, the kind of perception that he's an easy prey for Trump, which I'm not sure is true, but that's the perception. And Amy now has some rocket fuel as somebody who's like a tough take on Trump person. Bloomberg has that image because of money and, you know, he's a real billionaire and he gets under Trump's skin. But now, as you said, we're going to pull back the curtain and see how he can perform in the media in a debate. Uh, under the real test for for the first time in this race. It, it, stakes are huge for Bloomberg at that debate. Do you think Biden uh, survives South Carolina? That, I don't. Do you think you, you expect to see Biden on a ballot in the in, – that's a big thing for Bloomberg. Like job number one for them was to make sure that Biden wasn't on the ballot. I don't know that they anticipated that there would be uh, two other, yeah. you know, sort of center-left candidates coming out of this – uh, and I'm sure they would love to see Pete and Amy stumble between now and uh, and and Super Tuesday. One more thing on the debate, and I want to ask you a question about Super Tuesday and money. Um, you know, Klobuchar uh, knows that she's going to be in the in the crosshairs to some degree. Uh, her general view of life as a debater seems to be the best uh, defense is an offense. She hasn't really had to play much defense. Yeah, I wonder if she will have a few sort of of her humorous barbs for the newcomer Bloomberg uh, when when he arrives on that stage next week. All these guys, by the way, and gals have been debating for months and months and months and months. And there is something to be said for having had that experience. They're in game shape and he's coming in with no spring training into a high-stakes debate, I, I think this is a, a challenge for him. Oh, totally. And the media is ready to behead him if he doesn't live to his promise. And I look, you're right. We both know our, our hack friend John Max is at the typewriter right now working on Amy material for this one. So yeah. I, I would I would bet a lot that that's coming and uh, we're, we're see. And also, Bloomberg's such a strong personality. I, I'm not sure when Kevin or Howard walk down the hall and say, hey, we're going to do three days of debate prep. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure. He's always a guy who says, "Great, clear my schedule and call me names, and I'll stand at, stand at a podium and work on rejoinders." Kevin Sheeky and Howard Wilson, his uh, right, exactly. our old buddy Howard Wilson. Uh, running, I know the highly running that operation. So, okay, here's here's the scenario that could happen. Certainly, Bernie will be around for Super Tuesday, uh, and you know it looks like Buttigieg will be around, but uh, that he'll have the resources to do it. Maybe Amy will be there. Um, does but but no one is going to have the resources uh, to compete across fifteen states. Uh, Bloomberg will be bol- will be you know 
torquing up his media, which is already at a high level, and he'll be ubiquitous on television. Um, how much do you think that will mean on uh, March the 3rd? Well, I think that earned media messaging still trumps paid media. Um Bloomberg's done a great job of running up positives, and it's not just money. It's also the subject of his ads is pretty good, which is beating Trump and what he's done, and he has a good record. So I, I think they've run that string far. I ask you questions, and then I interrupt <laughs> you. That's how we run this deal. Yeah. On, that, uh, on, the, on the nature of his advertising, we should point out that he's been running the, the hell out of an ad that essentially feels like a Barack Obama endorsement of Mike Bloomberg. And it's smart. It's, uh, you know, everyone, uh, you know, all the cool kids have an Obama ad now. Elizabeth Warren ran one. Uh, Biden ran one. Now Bloomberg has one. But Bloomberg, especially because of stop and frisk and doubts about him with African-Americans, uh, that may be one of the reasons why he's running up some votes, uh, some vote with with black voters. Oh, yeah. And uh, but uh, the funny thing about it is they weren't particularly close when uh, when uh the president was in the White House. Bloomberg was not always uh, that uh, that that happy with the president, but uh, but it good for Obama. He seems to seems to be useful now. Well, it, it, I would say that you know the more you run an Obama endorsement ad, so far the more it's doomed to your candidacy. It did nothing for Joe, and I, I had not much for Warren. I think Bloomberg has bigger problems, and the stop and frisk, you know, they preemptively apologized a couple of times for it, which is shrew, but that doesn't make it go away. It just builds ammunition for your really right. in the fight. You're right about this earned media issue. You know, the thing about presidential races is they're covered like no other races. And oh, so, yeah, it's a totally different deal. You know, when you run a statewide race, as you know, because you won a gazillion of them, uh, sometimes at my expense. Uh, and vice versa. Uh, yeah. But... You know, people don't get a whole a lot of uh, coverage of those statewide races, and so they get a lot of information from ads. Totally different. Presidential races, they're seeing the candidates all the time on TV, uh, not uh, you know, uh, on earned media TV, uh, on on cable coverage, and and on the news, uh, and that tends to that tends to take precedence over. They believe what they see. They know that ads are what ads are. They tend to take their firsthand observation of candidates uh, much more seriously. Look at how Klobuchar yeah. moved things just with one debate. I mean, what ads do is is create a story that everybody knows so they might listen to you when you emerge in the campaign, and that's what Bloomberg has to do now. The ads have bought him a, a ticket to get listened to in some excitement, but he's got to fulfill it. I, I think to get back to the, the point we are talking about on just massive advertising, I, I, something you said earlier is what I've been thinking about, too, which is Bloomberg had this perfect storm, you know, step one, raise my positives, done. Step two, Biden implodes, done. Step three, become the new Biden and get the nomination. The problem is the Biden vacuum now is creating other new Bidens who are going to come out of South Carolina at the end of the month with a lot of momentum. And so does Bloomberg spend his resources hurting anybody? My guess is not. Those guys don't like to be criticized as kind of a billionaire bully they're sensitive to that with good reason. Um, so I think all that money, unless it turns into a weapon against somebody, if there's no clear anti-Bernie uh, person, uh, you know, may just require a little more luck than he might have. But if he's great at debates, if all of a sudden he's the adult 
and he's snappy and strong and he looks like a Trump killer, then, you know, he can run the table now. No doubt about it with no Biden there. Well, we're going to see soon enough next next Wednesday is the Bloomberg debut. <laughs> uh, and actually, that may be a break for Klobuchar because uh, all the attention would be focused on her as a newly arrived top tier candidate uh, if if Bloomberg weren't in the debate and Bloomberg may uh, steal some of that focus uh, away from whatever attacks come her way. So that could turn out to be uh, a break for her. So, hey, speaking of Bloomberg, why don't we pay a few bills here right now? I think we have some ads and we'll be back. You know, Gibbs, every once in a while uh, on Twitter, people will write in and say, Axe, you make me nauseous. But nausea is nothing to joke about. It's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not. Yeah. A good and, you, and, and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something. And now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now. And it's called Relief Band. Tell us about Relief Band. ReliefBand is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects, zero for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with Relief Band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to ReliefBand.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to ReliefBand, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D, Dot com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. So while uh, the Democrats are trying to figure out who their candidate is going to be, the guy they're going to face has been kind of unchained Yeah, uh, since uh, he uh, slipped the, uh, the, uh, the impeachment uh, conviction. I mean, in a way that is really kind of chilling. You know, he basically took he's taking care of all the family's business eliminating everybody who testified against him in the impeachment. Yeah, that the Vindman poor Vindman brothers perp walked out of the disgrace. Yeah. Perp walked out of the White House and yet and then yesterday he intimated that the military should consider disciplining them for, you know, having the temerity to tell the truth. And and poor actually just Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, his poor brother is like the innocent bystander, uh, you know, taken out uh you know, in retribution. But, you know, and then uh, we have his intervention in your old friend Roger Stone's uh, conviction. 
uh, and uh, sentencing. He intimates Tuesday morning that uh, he didn't like the uh, severity of the sentence that the prosecutors asked for in Roger Stone's case. And by afternoon, the Justice Department was reeling that back in, yep. and the four prosecutors quit. We're beginning to feel like a uh, banana republic here. No, totally. I, he's going to have a uniform with a gaudy feather on the top. Uh, I'm sure he's been looking at Juan Perón pa- portraits. Uh, military band everywhere he goes. It's disgusting. The Vindman thing's disgusting. And I'm very proud of those four prosecutors who walk because they still think they work for something called the Department of Justice. Um, but yeah, he he's feeling vindicated. He's misbehaving. He's also, you know, an emotionally fragile, weak person who's wounded um, and ricocheting around. You get leaks coming out of even his, you know, uh, hive of yes men there at the White House that they're concerned that he's in that demographic cul-de-sac and the data uh and when they're not getting excited about the idea of bernie sanders as an opponent you know they're they're seeing amy klobuchar who would i think would give him a strong race i think pete would too um so you know under pressure he acts up and we're going through it now i mean this is the one thing about trump he 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 will never curb his trumpiness which is an asset to people running against him i'd say the other political thing quickly is this budget proposal. We've both been to these wars where you propose a budget yeah, right. and you find a sub-item 411. What? Limousines for everybody, you know, in the Department of Postage Stamps. Oh, my, what <laughs> yes, an outrage. Right, right, right. Make an ad. And, or this will cut. Food stamps are now gone. There's a lot there. Plenty of fodder in this budget. Yeah, and they should use it. Yeah, plenty of fodder. So they're not only arguing process and he's a bad guy on Trump, but they actually get kitchen table economic issues weaponized. Yeah, cutting, uh, cutting entitlement programs, cutting social safety net. Uh, programs juxtaposed with his tax cut. Uh, no, I think that there's there's plenty there. Back to the just to him for a second and his behavior. You know, my view has always been that Trump's greatest liability is Trump. Uh, I mean, if if anybody else had the economy he has right now, they'd be walking to re-election. People are really uneasy with Trump, and the more he acts like Trump. Uh, and the more unbridled he is, the more pro- I think the more uneasiness people are going to feel. Uh, so, uh, you know, if I'm Republicans, I'm uh, shuddering every time I pick up my my uh, phone and and checking uh, Twitter to see, you know, what really troubling direction he's taken. Yeah. I, I think that he's going to yep. create big problems for himself. I totally agree. And we all know as the pressure gets up, he gets worse. You know, if you're a Republican running, you've already got his bad numbers to worry about. What you want is a calm, cool plan from the top. And instead, you basically have a monkey throwing feces at the wall and at anybody who walks by on an irregular schedule. So it, those shockwaves screw up your campaign. So, yeah, I, I mean, I can tell you there's there's despair and worry about that because they don't know any way to fix it. Should we uh, read some mail here? Yeah, let's play our song and go to the mailbag. So, Murphy, Dennis Dennis asks, if Sanders or Warren win the nomination at this point, more likely Sanders than Warren, do you think they will track to the middle in a general election to attract more moderate swing voters? If not, are there enough never-Trump Republicans to offset the difference if moderate Democrats and Republicans stay home? I think those never-Trumpers are moderate Republicans, or at least in today's parlance. Well, yeah, and there are also a lot of us who are just conservatives who don't think budget busting, you know, foreign trade hating, NATO hating, Donald Trump is a conservative. But but to Dennis's point, I think if Bernie wins the nomination, he's not going to moderate anything. Um, 
But his his thing, and you know, there's a Republican thought bubble that Bernie will lose and Trump will win. It's guaranteed, and that may be true. But I sure remember the right wing kook who couldn't win. Thank God he got nominated, Ronald Reagan. And I remember the reality kook who got you know in the primary and everybody laughed at, who's now the president. Uh, and you know, there have been other stories too of, of people that CW doesn't like. If Bernie's grievance motor revs up against big corporate America and, and things like that. It, it has some of the same DNA as Trump's message. So I, I don't instantly think Bernie loses a general, though it's, if he wins, it'll be a grievance revolution. It sure won't be moderation. And Warren, I think, is more calculating. I'm I'm not sure. I bet the ranch on her now. We didn't talk too much about her earlier just because I don't see much of a path unless others really explode or implode. But um, the, the smartest strategy for the Democrats is to nominate a change agent who's coded in Teflon and Trump can't make the election about. And, right. you know, Amy and Pete can both claim in different ways with, in an imperfect way. They both got downsides that they're, they're closer to that than a Bernie uh, or a Warren or even a Biden. Yeah. What about Bloomberg? Yeah. Look, I, you know, I think I, I know a, a, a listener to our podcast who's a good Democrat and, uh, Loves the idea of Bloomberg just because if the issue is beat Trump, get the guy with a billion dollars to clobber him with. Yeah, but that's the tactical argument. I look, I, I don't, that's the tactical argument that Biden's run, you know, which is I'm the guy who can beat Trump, so you don't have to love me. People, uh, you know, maybe it's just Democrats, but they kind of like to love their candidate. And, uh, he's got to find a way to make them feel that way, at least to sufficiently, uh, and, uh, the the other thing that he's going to have to overcome is just um you know he is in many ways the the portrait of the effete uh new york billionaire i mean in 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 his style and and his temperament and you know he's going to have to show more range if he's going to make this work that said 60 billion dollars does cover a lot of deficiencies on you're absolutely right on sanders the the whole key to his appeal is that he never changes right. he never the changes i mean it's a, he, he's authentic and i agree with you also that uh people are too quick to uh, judge w- uh what might happen if he were the nominee the real calculus and it's hard to make is he will lose some votes among uh, those uh, sort of fallen away Republicans and independents. He may lose uh, some of those suburban votes that Democrats have gained. And the question is, does he pick up votes elsewhere and bring out some younger voters who otherwise wouldn't vote to make up the difference? How does that net out? And uh, But we're a long way from having to do uh, that calculus. You got a question for me? I do. I do. This comes from Tracy. I'm a political junkie and marketing professional who loves reading about behind-the-scenes going-ons and especially the strategy behind campaigns. I loved Axelrod's book, Murphy Insert the Believer, available on Amazon.com on Kindle hardcover and softcover. (laughs) That a boy. Uh, Yeah, we'll move a few units here. Uh, And I would appreciate some suggestions on the best books of that kind, maybe some lesser-known hidden gems and older titles, that the hacks would suggest. All right, let's do the bookworm corner here. Hacks, what do you got? And then I have a couple. Greatest campaign book ever written, What It Takes, written in about the 1988 campaign by Richard Ben Kramer. Uh, and it, it's a long book, but it, it is so rich. One of the interesting things in that book is uh, he writes about Joe Biden because that was one of the campaigns in which Joe Biden ran. It was the one he had to leave uh, early uh, uh, because of 
plagiarism uh, charges, but the pro- his profile of Biden is enduring and rich and insightful. Uh, just a really wonderful book. So I would I would put that at the top of my list. How about you? I would second you on that. And he was a wonderful guy, a friend of ours, uh, Richard Ben Kramer. It's the great epic book um, of that primary. I- I'm going to give you a blizzard of obscure stuff you can buy, you know, at used books online for two bucks a piece. A really great one is a book by Cliff White, who engineered the Barry Goldwater takeover of the Republican Party. It's called Sweet 3505. It's the inside machinations of that. Another fun old school one is Ballots and Bandwagons by Ralph Martin, uh, who was a kind of a Kennedy Flack, an old reporter, and it's all about convention politics and uh, the Democratic Party in the early 60s and Kennedy and all that. Um, there's some great books about the long-lamented Jerry Ford campaign that started 30 points down and almost won. There's one called We Almost Made It. I'm blanking on it. wrote it. Uh, Malcolm, I think, uh, somebody about their ad campaign. Uh, they're all good. And I'll tell you, another one that's pretty good that just came out um, is Don Rumsfeld's book about his days inside the Ford administration when they were winding down Nixon trying to take over the White House. It's not really campaign stuff, but it's... Uh, it's one of the best, you know, fly in the wall memoirs. Uh, if you're interested in that Nixon Ford period, anyway, there, there are lots of these. Uh, enjoy just just Google campaign books. Plenty of people have written them, and most of them uh, are valuable at, at low prices at used bookstores. Yeah, let me add one. Since you, I didn't realize we were going to offer <laughs> lengthy lists there, Murphy. But another sort of a classic uh, antique is a book called The Selling of the President, 1968, totally. by Joe McGinnis, because it really sort of ushered in the modern era of presidential politics. It was about the reshaping and repackaging of Richard Nixon, who was a loser who uh, re- rekindled himself in uh, 1968 and changed his image with the help of a bunch of advertising guys and a, a young uh, TV producer named Roger Ailes. Uh, and it's really, it's really an interesting read. And I'm going to add one more. Sorry to be such a fountain, but I'm bumping into him tomorrow, and I want to tell him I plugged his book, Advance Man by Jerry Bruno, uh, really written by Jeff Greenfield, who was a young consultant, all about the good old days of advance, uh, which some of which we don't do anymore, but it's a, it's a fun read. We could go on forever like this. So let's go to the last call. Last call. You got one? You know, I do have a last call. Um, we're getting to the real interesting part of the presidential primary now. And one thing I hear from reporters as subtext, and I feel sorry for the Buttigieg people about this, is, well, he can't get, any, he can't get arrested of African-American voters, uh, you know, because of the police chief, although in South Bend politics he's been pretty successful. And then they kind of whisper, you know, and the older African-Americans uh, don't like a gay candidate. Well, that may or be true or not true, and Pete can go litigate it, but I, I think the if that is true, it, it ought to be talked about because it's not good. And there ought to be some criticism um, of that kind of feeling. I, I think it's, I, I hear it spoken of like, like you know, they don't like strawberry ice cream. And, and wait a minute, it's prejudicial if it's a thing. And if it's a thing, there ought to be a discussion about it out in the public uh, because I, I, I just don't like the idea of kind of accepting that as, as, uh, as some kind of norm, agreed to norm. It's prejudicial. Yeah, here, here, and I think it, it. I think it probably will be discussed more openly as we get uh, come down the the uh, the pike toward that South Carolina uh, primary. So we lost a few candidates uh, along the way here. All really, really good people. My old uh, friend Deval Patrick, the former governor of Massachusetts, who 
got in late and inadvisedly and couldn't make a stand and uh, is uh, now out of the race or will be today, apparently. Uh, the uh, 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 Michael Bennett, the senator from Colorado, who is really one of the great public uh, servants in this country, public officials, a uh, guy of deep conscience and uh, thoughtful, but just didn't didn't capture people's imagination in this race. And then a guy who did, Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang was uh, came out of nowhere in this race, uh, a uh, tech guy uh, who had created an organization to bring uh, uh, tech to underserved communities and uh, and really, I thought, brought a, a real spark to the race. And unlike all the other candidates, was focusing on the economic challenges of the 21st century, not the 20th century, and the impact of the rapid change that technology was creating in automation, and did it with humor and humanity. And a last thing about Andrew Yang, uh, he has a son with autism uh, and gave voice to uh, the struggles of people uh, with uh, disabilities and uh, challenges and and their families. And uh and spoke so lovingly about his son and made the point that we, we need to measure human value in a different way because everyone has value and everyone has worth. So good for you, Andrew Yang, and thank you for, uh, for everything that you brought to this race. Here, here. Look, he is a patriot, and the country benefited from him running. Uh, he had thoughtful, smart, smarter-than-average solutions to important problems. And I'm hoping some of this yangness rubs off on the other candidates because they could use it. And I hope he runs again. We, we need more citizens like Andrew Yang in our politics holding elected office. And I don't think we've heard the end of Andrew Yang, and I, I hope we don't. Oh, no. Kudos to Bennett, too. He's a friend of mine as well. He, he would have been a great candidate against Trump, but he, he just didn't seem to have the uh, – the whatever the it is that Democratic primary voters were looking for, which is kind of a sad thing. And at least we got to enjoy the Carville uh, 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 mad network uh, uh, finish to his campaign. So, you know, he, he went out swinging and good for him for that. What did you think, by the way, as we leave here, what did you think about James's uh, uh, diatribe about the Democratic party uh last week or i think this he's week, right I, I heard him do the diatribe i do all the time about what's this trump invisible you know invincibility stuff he could be beat uh you know james is a marine and he doesn't like this screwing around with social experimentation let's run a candidate who's uncontroversial and beat the damn guy so i i was applauding and hooting i i'm with him on that all right brother well we'll uh another big chapter uh will turn next week the end of next week uh, the nevada caucuses this is uh, this is a really uh, interesting one. It's not obvious. There's going to be a lot of chapters here. Yeah, I think we might have to cover that one live from Vegas. I'll, I'll call you offline. <laughs> we'll make some. Uh, we'll take the hacks on tap fortune to the roulette table and double it to get up to three hundred dollars. <laughs> All right, pal. Great to hear your voice. On to Nevada. All right, my friend. See you there. 